This is React Podcast. I'm Chantastic. This week, we sit with Swizzitz Teller and learn how to get more done in every day. Swizzitz has an incredible work ethic, regularly blogging, vlogging, live streaming, and writing books on your favorite web technologies, React and D3. How does he do it all and keep a full-time job at a startup? Today, we try to find out what his secret is and how to mimic that focus. Before we dive in, a big thanks to our sponsors this week, Infinite Red and TopTel. Infinite Red builds beautiful, functional apps in React Native, and they want to help you bring your ideas to life. Got an idea you want to share with the world? They can build it. Got an old app that's all kinds of busted and need help making it agile again? They can help you fix it. Use their expertise in design, mobile, React Native, Ruby on Rails, Node, Phoenix, and Elixir to get your app on track. For a limited time, listeners of React Podcast get two tickets to Infinite Red's Chain React Conf when they start a new project. Chain React is North America's only React Native conference, and attendees are saying it's the friendliest, most educational conference they've ever been to. At the conference, you'll meet the team, discover what they're about, and see why they're the React Native industry experts to take your app the distance. To start a project, go to a very special URL just for you, reactpodcast.infinite.red. Yes, .red is a TLD. Get two tickets to Chain React Conf 2020 and build a beautiful, functional React Native app with Infinite Red. Now, to all you developers sitting on the fence about going independent, I want to tell you about TopTalJobs.com. Tell me if this sounds like you. You're looking for the next big move in your career. You've done the nine to five office thing and you've got the merit badges from working at big tech companies. You're at the top of your game and what you're looking for now is a way to take control of your career. You need to go to TopTalJobs.com. At TopTal, you can accelerate your career. Plug into jobs with top Silicon Valley and Fortune 500 clients. You can work however and wherever you like at a rate that you set. They have a ton of new and exciting React opportunities, but they're not limited to React. If you want to be a better T-shaped developer and master the entire stack, they have projects that will challenge you in all of the new exciting frameworks and the old ones too. The question is, do you have what it takes to join the world's top 3% of freelance developers? Get started today. Go to toptaljobs.com and take back control of your career. Now, let's talk hustle with Swizzitz Teller. Swizzik, welcome to React Podcast. Hi, it's really nice to be here. I'm super glad to have you. We've been uh, kind of developing a little bit of a uh, Twitter relationship, and it's nice to kind of see your face, sit down, and have a like honest to god conversation. Yeah, definitely. It's it's a lot different after you've spent a while on the in- on the internet together, and you're like, hey, I know what you're like as a person now. <laughs> yeah, I I I don't know if you have a rule like this, but I have a general rule in terms of following people on Twitter of um, I don't 
tend to follow someone until I've actually met them, like really? shaking their hand or like had some kind of like interaction, like a, a Zoom call or like a, a live thing or something. Um, even just listening to a talk, actually, um, because you can't really know a person until you like get a little bit of their like nuance. Like you need to be able to like frame what they're saying through like their actual voice mm-hmm. or else like you get into problems sometimes. Yeah, I feel that. But I've also, I grew up on the internet pretty much. So I'm very used to meeting people online first and then eventually meeting them in person sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> so so you're not willing to risk it then, like to, 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 to not take that risk and, uh, you know, risk knowing someone and then having that grow into something bigger. I mean, I... I really, I go both ways. I'm just very used to finding people online first and like becoming friends and chatting. And then eventually you see, you usually meet them at a conference or you do a podcast or whatever. Yeah. I don't know. That is a very satisfying moment when you, you you actually meet someone in the first time in the, Mm -hmm. in in the flesh. Definitely. (laughs) Um, Are you going to any uh, conferences this year? Are you, you speaking Uh, a lot? I'm, I've actually been, I've been, I used to speak at conferences a lot more and now I've been kind of tapering off. They've, mm-hmm. it gets, I found it kind of gets boring after a while or you, re- <laughs> actually what it is, is that I realized that everyone who speaks at conferences is a DevRel these days and I just can't compete. Yeah. Like you, it's your full-time job to apply to CFPs. I, I can't keep that up. My, my applications are never going to be good enough to get accepted anywhere. Yeah. I mean, I've actually had more luck getting full day workshops accepted than 30 minute talks, which is kind of crazy. That's interesting. So I'd love to kind of talk about that real quick. Do you usually pitch a workshop to a conference or do they have like a different kind of process for inviting workshops? That's, I don't, I think I've pitched a workshop a couple of times, but what I found actually tends to work is networking with conference organizers. So they, because ah. workshops are usually the main money maker for conferences. Mm-hmm. So they, they want to, they know who does workshops and they invite people to come give a workshop. And usually there's profit sharing as well. So it's not like for talks, a lot of the times you're essentially volunteering and they open a CFP and a bunch of people submit. And unless you're famous, you can, you can almost never get through. Or I, or or maybe I just suck at writing proposals. But for workshops, I find that people are like, "Hey, we know you do workshops. We know your workshops usually sell out. So want to come sell out at our conference instead of that other conference." <laughs> That's interesting. I I had never really thought about uh, workshops as a, uh, I guess like parallel track to giving talks because mm-hmm. I feel like talks are are the the spot like that's the thing that's spotlighted right like yeah. everyone wants to like give talks they want to get to I remember me like that was like a huge point in my career when I got mm-hmm. my first CFP accepted and I was like yeah I've I've made it and then you realize like I'm traveling for free taking time off of work and like I, I don't feel as famous as I thought I would standing <laughs> on stage for 30 minutes yeah I mean com- conferences are really good for like mm, have you ever noticed how most of the people who are giving talks are either at the beginning of their career and they're doing it because they want to get a better job or they are a devrel for a company and they're actually just yeah. there to sell something. Yeah, <laughs> yeah really, I mean, it's a really high percentage. Yeah, because like 
I feel like people in the middle of their career, they would have a lot of very interesting perspectives, but they just don't give talks because they're not as excited about all of these technologies because there's not not new anymore, right? It's hard to mm-hmm. give a talk about something like, yeah, I've seen this a million times already. It's just not interesting. Or um, just like taking time out of engineering and going for talks. It can be can be tiring if you're not used to it i guess yeah and it's hard to do it enough to to like build a career out of it you would have to go like give a talk every two weeks or something right yeah i'm always amazed i mean we could all just kind of like you know sit around and kind of like you know Mm -hmm. praise the work ethic of kent c dodds Um, but like i'm always amazed because like every single time i like look at like a new conference i see his freaking face it's giving a talk i'm like how does he do it <laughs> i i have no idea how he does that i like i just i tried give i tried becoming a popular conference speaker and it ended up being just too much work i was like i'm just gonna go back into my hole and write code it's easier so what are some of the other ways then like as you've kind of decided to taper off mm-hmm. of the speaking um, what are some of the other ways that you really like to, to to get out there I mean there's so many avenues for oh, yeah. uh, putting yourself out there and showing off like what you can do and helping people in the community uh, mm-hmm. what are some of the other ways that you really enjoy doing that so what I what I found works best for me and maybe that's just because I've been doing it for so long is blogging mm-hmm. I I try I always feel like I'm not blogging enough but I've been probably averaging two to three blog posts per week for the last many years. But I've been blogging for like 10 years, so it's gotten a lot easier. I find blogging relatively easy because I like writing. I like expressing myself through writing. And it give, writing, writing a blog gives you time to really think about something and you can sit down and think about it without the pressure of having an audience or anything like that. You just write it and if it's not good enough on the first try, you just rewrite it and and polish it until it, you feel like you're it's ready. The other one that I found is surprisingly easy. Easy is a bad word, but <laughs> it's surprisingly enjoyable. Is life coding. Mm. Um, it takes takes a while to get used to, but it's you just turn on the camera and you go code something. And if you do it consistently for a while, you end up starting to have uh, the same people start showing up in chat, and you kind of build relationships that way. And it's a, like a it's a really cool way to put yourself out there to show stuff. And I find it also really helps with focus because it's very hard to go on Twitter when there's 10 people watching you code. Yeah, I, you know, that's true. There was there was a week where I was like, where I was like, you know what, I'm going to give live coding a try. Mm-hmm. And I was doing stuff for, I was like, I'll just do stuff that I was going to do anyway for work. And yeah. I that thing that you're talking about surprised me. Because yeah. all of those times where I would like hit a wall and normally go to Twitter, mm-hmm. it was like, oh, no, I actually have to press through because like there's people yeah, here yeah. and like I'm like doing this in the open. <laughs> right. Right. And, th- and then you, and then you realize I, I just don't actually ever get stuck. I'm just getting stuck because I give up. Quickly. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, you know where I originally got the idea that you can use live coding to uh, to help with focus. Where? So you you know, Minecraft, right? Yeah, yeah. So you've heard of Notch. Mm-hmm. He he originally developed Minecraft fully while live coding because he he was like, I can't focus. Otherwise, I'm just going to live code whenever I work on Minecraft. And he just 
built Minecraft live, and that's also how he originally built the audience for Minecraft, so that so that he had a user base to start with. That's amazing. Now you, you touched right there on something that is another big benefit of 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 live coding and doing things in the open is mm-hmm. we've kind of like thought about like marketing something as like having having the thing done, having it be polished, and then like putting it out into the world, and then having like a sales phase. Yeah. Um, but with live coding, it feels like you're kind of building your audience while you're discovering what the product is. And you've done this a ton. Um, how have you have you learned about that? What have been some like good resources for you? And what have you learned? So I think the resource that really, actually what really made me realize this problem was when I, I did my first startup in college. And we did pretty well. We we developed this thing that was amazing, or at least we thought it was amazing. And then, you know, you launch it and crickets, right? There's <laughs> yeah. nobody, there's no, literally nobody waiting for your new fancy new startup. So I realized that it's much better to first build an audience, um, whatever way you enjoy do, building an audience. So you build an audience and then you ask the audience, hey, what can I do to provide value to you? And then you just build that. So instead of, making something up, find an audience first, then work on building an audience or a community or whatever, and then build what they need so that when you're launching it, you first of all, you know that you're solving a problem that somebody has. Mm-hmm. You know you you immediately have access to your first couple of customers or leads at least to people you can talk to. And then it also gives you a, like a, a trusted circle of people that you can iterate with. because. Hmm. Um, until people actually try what, whatever you're building, you don't actually know what you should build to to make something useful, if that makes sense. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So do you usually have like an idea for something and then like start start building it and see what the audience is? Or do the ideas come out of regular blogging, live streaming, and um, that kind of thing? Honestly, honestly, it's a bit of both. Like one of my more successful... Uh, free projects was es6cheatsheet.com, mm-hmm. which was just a dynamic cheat sheet for JavaScript. And the, I got the idea for that when I was teaching a workshop to real people. And one of them mentioned, you know, I really enjoy your workshop, but I understand none of this syntax. This is just too hard for me. And I was like, all right, of course, people, it's like 2016, people don't all know ES6 yet. They don't, not everyone is super used to this new JavaScript syntax. So I built a resource for that and it became like, it went viral for a little bit. Now it get, doesn't get as much traffic anymore, but that was very successful. So um, I kind of I kind of do a little bit of both. I, I have an idea and then I usually, I either test it out with, um, if you follow me on Twitter, you might notice sometimes I ask really weird questions and that's <laughs> usually me doing research to see, will would people like this? Would people want something like this or you work on an you work on an idea and you post a tweet out and if it gets a lot of likes you know you're onto something or maybe if it doesn't or if nobody cares you should go work on something else there's a lot of easy ways you can test whether your idea is something that you should keep pursuing so do you feel like twitter is like the best test bed for that or do you use your um your newsletter and 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 live streaming for that as well twitter is really good because I have just enough followers on Twitter to make it useful. I don't have as many as like Kent C. Dodds or Sarah Dresner or 
any of the actually famous people, but I have just enough that if I shout into the void, sometimes the void shouts back. <laughs> but yeah, so I usually what I usually do is I I often test ideas with blog posts. So I write a blog about some idea I have or just a concept, and then send it to my email newsletter, to my newsletter, my Twitter, and so on, and I see what the response is. And if it has good response, I then follow up and double down and work on it more. How do you manage, how do you, how do you balance, uh, I, I know that you, like myself, have like a, a full-time job and then you also have this like side hustle mm-hmm. and uh, you have a, a partner and a, and a parent and how do you manage all of these these moving parts and keep any level of consistency? So funny you should ask that, how do I keep any level of consistency? Because the only thing that I found, the only way I found that you can do all of those things is if you have consistency. Huh. Like it's, I've, at least for me personally, it's a lot easier to say, I am going to spend an hour every morning when I wake up writing or a blog post or creating something, doing something creative than it is to say, I'm not going to do anything. And then I'm going to spend three hours working on something on Friday or sure. I'm good or like switching off. So what I do is I, and this is probably something that developed over many years. I just keep a strict time boxing schedule. So it's, I don't, I'm not very good at calendars or organizing myself, but I'm pretty good at saying every morning from like 7 a.m. to 9 a.m., I work on my side hustle. And then I go to work and I'm at work for a specific period of time. Then I go to the gym every day for the very, for the same time. And like just having that sort of cadence where everything always happens at the same time and in the same sequence kind of it kind of helps you fit everything into the same day because you have specific time boxes but it also helps with um with like the habit of it if you know that every day at 7 a.m you're gonna go into a text editor and start typing it makes it much easier to actually do that because it's like your body wants to do it so (laughs) It actually, you get, like, it's funny, but you get to the point where if you don't do something, that's when it feels weird and wrong. Interesting. Interesting. Now, that also is kind of like a counterintuitive way of thinking, because I think Mm -hmm. a lot of people think that if they just had the time and the space, right, like they just had a month alone in a cabin in the woods, they'd be able to do the thing that they've always wanted to do. And it's just not true. Uh, you know, what's more true is like if you, you, know, you wake up every day, you got your schedule, you do the yeah. 30 minutes to an hour that you can, and then eventually you have something. Yeah, exactly. Because like you would be surprised. Open, try opening your iPhone sometimes and go to settings and there's that field that shows you you actually spent three or four hours a day on Twitter <laughs> yeah. or just in general <laughs> on your phone. That is a lot of hours. Now imagine if if instead of splitting those hours up into a minute here, two minutes there, you collected all of it into one hour that's focused in the morning and you didn't spend it on Twitter, but on something else. Um, and it's like that kind of that kind of stuff really works. And uh, in terms of not having time, there's a really good anecdote I heard once. It's like, uh, it's basically, there was a philosophy class, right? The professor has a mason jar and then he has a bunch of rocks, a bunch of sand, and a bunch of really fine-grained sand. And he says, how do you fit all of this into the mason jar? <laughs> and you and you take the sand and you 
or like the fine sand and you pour that in and the mason jar is full. You can't put any of the rocks in, nothing fits anymore. The, it's just full. So, and he says that that obviously is not the way to fit everything. So he pours it out and then he pours the rocks in first and they basically fill the jar. Then he takes the sand, pours it into the jar and it finds all of the little cracks between the rocks and manages to find the spot, the place. Um, and then he takes the fine sand and it still finds the even smaller spaces between the between the things. And he says, you see, the ro- the rocks are your important things in life. They're your partner, your family, your job, whatever. Then the sand is um, like the sand is the slightly less important part. And the fine sand is then like Twitter and Netflix and things like that. <laughs> and it's like if you if you make time for the important things first, you will find time for the less important things as well. You will always find time for the less important stuff as long as you make these immovable op- big obstacles first. Uh, and then the, re- the really cool thing is one of the students then comes in and pours a beer into the um, into the mason jar and says, you see, there's always time for a beer with friends. <laughs> I love it. So how do you protect your time from like the easy stuff, like the the inertia of just like sitting back and like re- reading Twitter and feeling like you're networking air quotes. <laughs> I mean, I honestly always feel like I'm really bad at that. But one thing I do is that I always schedule like work is easy to schedule. It's always from 930 to six or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And it's pretty easy. You know, you have to be at the office and you have to go there. And that's like a huge time block that is automatically reserved for you. You don't have to think about that that much. And then I always schedule my gym time after that. So I it's always in my calendar and it's an immovable obstacle. If somebody wants to do something while I'm supposed to be at the gym, the answer is no. We're going to either have to move it or it's not happening. That's just, <laughs> just the way it is. I need my gym time. I'm not going to be able to live with myself if I don't go. And then I like have uh, these times where that are reserved for my girlfriend and that's also that's when I that's when I'm I belong to my girlfriend and unless it's a very special occasion nothing else happens during that those times and then I kind of for everything else I find the time basically yeah now speaking of work and having like a big block of your time kind of accounted for yeah how do you manage that that specific relationship because I know a lot of times there is I guess some companies that that mm-hmm. feel a benefit from a person who has a, a big following and you know live streams and shares code and whatnot. Yeah. Uh, but there's a lot of companies that are threatened by that. Mm-hmm. Uh, what has your experience been, and what have you learned as you've done these public things? So in my experience, it's always be, it's been kind of a like almost a little frowned upon, mm-hmm. not not actively discouraged per se. It's more like we we feel a little bit threatened by that and we, we would prefer if you just focused on us your like if everything just you you just really focused on what we want you to focus on but at the same time if it's not impacting your work if you're still delivering if you're getting everything done that you're supposed to get done they don't really have an argument for saying well you do all of these other things you could do even more for us cuz at the end of the day you need some variety in your life you can't just yeah focus 100% on one thing but at the same time it does it's I think usually it ends up being very helpful when you need to hire mm-hmm. it's helpful to have somebody on your team who can be who can say yeah I I'm just gonna e- message all of these people that I'm networked with that 
they should come work here. So it's it's more about making making sure that your side hustle doesn't impact your work and then finding like those points of where you can use your side hustle to be useful at work. Like a big part for me is that a lot of my side hustle actively makes me better at my day job because yeah. I learn new technologies, I discover things, I play around with techniques and so on. So that it's kind of a mutually beneficial relationship. I don't I don't think it would work as well if I was side hustling on making React courses and my day job was selling insurance. <laughs> yeah, it seems like those things might not be aligned as well. Um, yeah, exactly. So it sounds like there's always a little bit of tension there. And, and, and I think I've experienced this too. Like, uh, there's always a little bit of tension there where the business's preference is, like you said, they just we want all of all of the time that you can give us exactly um but if it's not discouraged you kind of have to take a little bit of a risk and push the boundaries where you can yeah it's like you just oftentimes if you just go for it nobody is actually going to say anything <laughs> if you ask for permission they're going to say no but if you just do it they're like oh well you did it and maybe maybe in the beginning they're not even going to notice that you're doing these things that is that is that's definitely one thing that has has struck me is is that it seems like a lot of us kind of assume the attention part like we assume that people are going to care mm -hmm. a lot if we just start doing something and for people who are actually doing stuff you realize like the attention is the hardest part to get and like if your company even notices that you have a live stream like yeah exactly you're it's, further along than most <laughs> yeah it's there's a there's a famous quote i can't remember who it's from but it's it goes something like you would be a lot less worried what people think about you if you knew how little they do. <laughs> oh man, ain't that the truth? Yeah, like getting noticed is the hard part. Um, and like then it depends. If you're in a small startup, it's obviously a lot more obvious. If you are in like a six-person company, everyone's gonna know. Hey, this guy has a side hustle that we don't really think that's cool, but fine, whatever. Ver versus if you're at I don't know, PayPal or Google, they're going to be like, who? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> have you had any uh, any victories, I guess, from that network? And have you been able to kind of point to those and be like, see, like this is this is actually a benefit to you as well? Uh, that's a really good question. And we did have a an intern once who came in and he was like, oh, what is that Swizzets? I just, <laughs> what? That That was a very weird experience. But other than that, we haven't really. Um, so I work at a like a relatively early stage startup, so we haven't really hit our growth scale yet. So I haven't had the chance to really use my network or anything to say, "Hey, come work for me." But I have been able to use a lot of the learnings from this. Or yeah. what actually, one way I have been able to use my network is getting stuck on a problem at work and being able to just tweet like can't see dots or Dan Abramov and be like, hey, this doesn't work. What can we do? Yeah. And people people answer on Twitter, which is really cool. Yeah. Yeah. That is, I mean, that is definitely a thing. I mean, being able to save, you know, a couple days or a week worth of time just by tweeting someone that you have a relationship with is yeah, exactly. amazing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> or yeah, th like that kind of stuff really helps or just being in the loop and knowing where to look for certain questions that you have or like where to go on GitHub, which blogs to read, mm -hmm. stuff like that. It's it's like, it's hard to measure, but there's just this sort of 
general benefit. Yeah, there's a lot of a lot of intangibles there. Mm-hmm. Now, you've always been super open about like your salary and your mm-hmm. income from hustle and kind of like talking about how those things uh, how those things map out and kind of being able to like show growth on those things and kind of even demonstrate the decisions that you're making b- because of those changes. Um, has that always been like kind of like a natural course for you? That's a very, uh, I think, taboo or like off limit thing uh, a lot of times to talk about money. Yeah. Um, but like, has it felt natural for you? Um, so I'm kind of a rebel in that and it might, it might be because of where I grew up because I grew up in a post-socialist country in Europe where everyone talks about salaries. Like the first thing you talk about is how much everyone makes because it's usually pretty pegged based on your education and stuff. So it was kind of always known if you're at such and such company in this and this position, we can usually just look up your salary online and we will know pretty much how much you make. Um, So it's never been that taboo for me. And I've kind of, kind of the opinion of the opinion that in terms of if you if you want to look at, at it from a class warfare perspective, the biggest victory of capital has been convincing us peasants that talking about money is taboo. Because like think about it, who who benefits from employees not talking to each other about salary? It's not the employees, yeah. it's the employer. Yeah. Um so and I personally whenever I saw somebody on the internet talk like people say they don't want to talk about salary because it makes them feel bad or they're like, what if I don't make as much as the others? Or what if I make so much more, I make other people feel bad. And I think that's kind of stupid because if you make somebody feel bad because you make so much more money than they do when you're at a similar position, they should use that as encouragement to go and try to make more money. And I've always, when I, I've always appreciated when people share numbers online because it makes me know what's possible. It's like, Mm. Um, it's like they talk about this a lot in sports or uh, stuff like that where they or sports movies things like that where they say that having role models is important or having examples so I think it's important to show that hey you can do this kind of work and reach this sort of level I got there I got there you can get there too here's how you can do it and I think it's important to encourage others because if everyone hides how much they're making, it's not, people can't compare, people don't know. So then somebody can be super happy at whatever level they are, but they, the person sitting right next to them at the same job could be making twice as much and they don't, and they aren't just because they didn't think to ask because they were like, I'm already happy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I like that idea, like the, the responsibility of sharing and giving people an understanding of like, where they're at. Because like you said, if you are doing similar work, like that should be, uh, it should be inspiring, right? I, I mean, yeah, exactly. A, a lot of times, like, you know, depending on the company culture, like they, that just, that's just a bridge burned, but maybe it inspires yeah. them to go out and get what they're worth somewhere else, which is also good. Yeah. I mean, it can also be, it doesn't have to be the same company. You can also encourage people at other companies. Mm-hmm. And that's part of the, like, part of why I share these numbers publicly is because I personally got a lot of growth out of just seeing what's possible, like knowing, like going on Hacker News and seeing people bicker about making 200K or 250K. And I was in Europe making 30K doing the same work. I was like, 
this is dumb. Why, why am I, why am I putting up with this? I'm putting the same value out. I'm doing the same work. I want to make 250 K. I don't want to stay at 30. So, and because, because that helped me, I want to cinch. It's basically like my way of paying it forward is giving people this example that it is possible. You can do these things. I'm not saying I'm super successful at it, but I feel like I'm, I think it's important to share those kind of stories. Yeah. I mean, if it's something that you've been inspired by, Mm -hmm. then it's going to be inspiring for someone else as well to see those numbers. Yeah, exactly. On that same vein, like what inspired you to do some of your side hustle, some of your more public work sharing in that way um, when you've kind of like achieved a certain level in your career already? So that's actually a really good question. I'm kind of... um, I think it kind of ties back to the FIRE movement, uh, financial independence, retire early. Mm-hmm. But I was never really about the whole uh, Mr. Money ma- Mustache might be <laughs> familiar or people like that. I don't, I don't like penny pinching, but I do like the idea of detaching my, um, my income from my time. So I, yeah. I'm always, I'm always looking for how to scale. So I started. Back when I started my career, I was working as a PHP coder for like $7 an hour, which which was great. And I could make more money by just working more. And it got at some point, it got very tiring and I hit a sort of ceiling. And I was like, okay, well, this isn't working. I am having a hard time to keep growing at the same level. So what if I try freelancing instead? And with freelancing, I could immediately jump to much higher revenue. And that worked really well for a while. And then I realized, well... I'm just kind of burning myself out and working and working and working. And there's only so much I can scale my hourly rate doing normal freelance work, not consulting work. So what if I try instead getting a job so that I have a steady... Well, first of all, I moved to the US. That immediately gave me a bump. But then also I got a job and I started focusing on the side hustle because the side hustle can... When you're selling products, you can sell those when you're asleep. Hmm. So in theory... If you if everything works well, your revenue per hour grows the longer that your product is out there. So if you spend 200 hours creating something, uh, you launch it the first time and you make, let's say, $2,000, your revenue is $10 per hour. But then you launch it a second time and you make $5,000 and a second time and you make... I've now made, I think about $150,000 in five years selling info products, Wow! which I, like, it depends on who you ask. Some people say that's a lot. Some people say it's not. It's definitely not enough to live on in San Francisco. Sure. <laughs> but, but my hourly, my effective hourly rate has been going up steadily mm. on my side hustle. So from that perspective, info products scale really well. And info products are also a good way to it's an easy way to get started with products and selling and working on learning how to market, learning how to build an audience because you already have these all of this expertise. You already know how to do these things because you're most likely a thought worker. You work with your mind. So if you teach other people how to work with their mind, you can, you essentially have a higher leverage on your time <laughs> is the way I think about it. It's like, uh, like uh, I think Patio calls it a force multiplier. If you put an hour of coding, you get out an hour of coding result. But if you put in an hour of teaching and you teach for one hour, 100 people, you get 100 hours of coding out. Mm. So 
even if you're not capturing all of that value, you are contributing more value to the world. And the way our society has decided to measure value is dollars. So the more value you create for others, the more dollars you make and the better it is for you. Yeah. So that's kind of the theory. And then it's all about how you find ways to scale that. Yeah, it seems like there's a really nice, um, you're diversifying in a way too. Yeah. Um, because, you know, when you go to, a, go to a job, you get paid for the time that you put in and you're creating mm-hmm. a way to, as you said, make money while you sleep. Yeah, exactly. Do you worry about burnout? as you have a full day at work and then, you know, working out and relationships and uh, building products? <laughs> I've, I actually, I used to worry about burnout a lot more. Uh, I actually, I even wrote a book that was inspired by burnout and never finished. It was called Why Programmers Work at Night. Yeah. It was like one of my first products that I put out. And that was a lot of fun. I did a lot of research on burnout and sleep and what works and what doesn't. And it, what I learned recently, it's, um, what's it called? The book you should read about that is, I think it's called Peak Performance. And what it says is that burnout is burnout doesn't happen because you work too much. Burnout happens when you work more than, when you work too much without a reward. Huh. So if you feel stuck in a rut and you just keep pressing and keep pushing and keep working and you, you're not seeing any progress... That's what burns you out. Whereas if you keep, if you make sure that whatever you're working on is showing some signs of progress that are exciting enough, and if you make sure that you balance periods of super hard work with periods of relaxation, you can kind of keep, you're essentially like, uh, it's like throttling. You, If you run at just under the limit, you will be fine. You're going to be tired, but you're not going to burn out. And then I personally haven't really found that just yet so i kind of periodically feel like i'm burned out and then i take a couple of days easy and i'm back and it's like it's very it's kind of always running on the edge of burnout i guess yeah now you seem to have a lot of of like when i think of you you have like a very styled life so you live in san francisco you've uh, you've you have kind of incorporated hats into your brand, which is uh, it, which is a unique thing. Um, and then I said parrot earlier, but I I know I got the bird wrong. What, what kind of bird? I have a sun conure, and he's I think he's like five years old now. Wow. Yeah. the 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 crazy part is that when we got him, he was a baby, and then after we got him, we found out that they live thirty five years. <laughs> So that's like turtles. My son really wants a tortoise. Really? And we're like, oh, yeah, sure. We can do a tortoise. And then we're like, they li- they, like they're going to outlive like both of us and maybe the grandchildren. Yeah, that's it's pretty crazy. But no, parrots are a lot of fun. They're they're a really fun pet. They're much. I used to have ca- have a cat. And honestly, parrots are a little better. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I think I, like when I think of you, I think of all of these 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 things uh, like even motorcycles. Right. Like you've incorporated a lot of these things into your mm-hmm. uh, your persona. Is that just like an extension of you living or is there kind of like something that you're like trying to work toward in towards in terms of your own persona? You know, I think I think it's mostly just an extension of me doing my stuff. And I I've always liked sharing what I do and kind of. Mm-hmm being very open about my life so that's kind that's worked out really well in the in that way there were if i'm excited about something i want to tell everyone so when i get a new motorcycle you're gonna see it it's gonna be literally everywhere (laughs) i've kind of 
always been like that. So yeah, it's, I think it's really just an extension of, of me. I never, I'm not very good at intentional brand building or anything like that, but I'm pretty good at just sharing whatever I'm already working on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, one of your favorite uh, projects, and I'd love to talk, uh, showcase some of your projects. Uh, one of my favorite ones that I got to witness was uh, Learn While You Poop. Oh yeah, that was fun. <laughs> and I thought that that was very much a... It was unique in that it had a lot of character that like I'm not used to seeing, right? Like you see mm-hmm. a lot about the technology or like, you know, what you're gonna learn and like very little that's a little bit subversive and you know, like kind of funny. And like the whole shtick where you're like just doing stuff in the bathroom was like yeah. really amazing. Uh, how did that come to you and what were some of the interesting parts of doing that project? So Learn While You Poop was an interesting project. I think I ended up doing it for maybe two months and then I couldn't keep it up. My idea was basically, I used to vlog and a couple of people told me that they watch my vlogs while they're pooping because <laughs> it's it's on Facebook, it's entertaining and it's just short enough that they can, you know, do their thing while they, while they watch my video. And I actually even had a lot of people way back when tell me that they read my blogs while they're pooping because I guess that's when people are on social media. So It makes you never want to borrow someone's phone. Yeah. Like, I was thinking, well, I'm noticing a lot of people say that they don't have time to really consume content that's 10 or 20 minutes or even an hour long because that just takes too much time. So I thought, what if I could make it perfect to be really short and to work, to learn just a little bit of something while you're pooping or doing whatever. So the short bite-sized and then the the actual length of two minutes, 20 seconds per video came because that's the longest video you can embed in a tweet. Okay. And I wanted people to be able to consume them directly from Twitter, not have to go anywhere because as it turns out, people no longer click on links on anything. Yeah. Um, like there's so many people I follow on Twitter who apparently have a blog and I've just never ever actually clicked on their blog. I just consume their tweets <laughs> and I talk to them and they share, a, they share a blog on Twitter. I do that as well. Everyone shares their blog on Twitter. but And I have entire conversations about those blogs just from reading the title and description on Twitter Twitter and never clicking through. It's like, and I think everyone does that yeah, to an yeah. extent. Yeah, yeah. You kind of just, you read the title and assume the content. Yeah, exactly. And so I wanted to make it really easy to consume directly on Twitter. And then one of the things that I learned pretty early on about marketing is that you need to have a hook. So learn while you poop. If it's designed to be on the on the pooper and if it looks like I'm just casually chatting with you in the bathroom, then that's going to be a perfect hook to actually get you interested in this and get shares, make it potentially go viral. And I think it worked pretty well. I got... Those were some of my most watched uh, videos on Twitter. It just ended up being too much work to keep doing it every day, unfortunately. Well, I loved it. I mean, as an isolated project, I thought that it was, I thought it was great. It was definitely a thing. Do you think that you may have like a, you know, see, I think you did two seasons and like, would you do a season three at some point? I, I've been thinking of doing a season three. I think I, I need to, I need to get better at explaining things because those two minute videos would take me, once I got relatively good at it, I could record the video in like 10 minutes, but then editing it to actually fit into two minutes and 20 seconds took me like an hour, <laughs> hour and a half. Um, Cause what you end, 
I I can't speak as fast or as clearly as somebody who is doing an auction. So I have to, I speak like a normal person mostly, and I have to do a bunch of takes because I don't like writing scripts. And then editing was just cutting out all of the tiny pauses between words. And it kind of made the video look a little bit unnatural and kind of sped up, but it also just takes a lot of time to do that. Yeah. So I, and that's primarily why I stopped. Yeah. But it was a lot of fun. You have a bunch of other content too. Um, tell me a little bit mm-hmm. about uh, about writing. You mentioned the the book about. Uh, I think the Night Owls book is the domain thenightowls.com. Yeah, is that right? Yeah, I think it's nightowlsbook.com. Oh, nightowlsbook.com. Sorry about that. Um, and then you have, um, I think, two resources on, like one on just D three, and then one on uh, the intersection of React and D three. How has your experience been writing? And my experience with writing has been. I really enjoy writing. It's a lot of fun. It's pretty, to, for me, producing written content is relatively easy. I like explaining things through writing. And I think the coolest the coolest side effect of writing a lot has been that I've become better at also just expressing myself clearly. Yeah. I don't need to think for a long time to, like, I can sometimes give something like a talk and just ad-lib it on the spot and people think I prepared because I got so used to structuring my thoughts based on Mm. out of writing. But I did, one of my bigger writing projects was a D3 book for Pact. And that was an interesting project because I ended up writing the whole book about three times because they wanted so many edits that I had to essentially rewrite the whole thing. Yeah, it did make the, the, the final book better. And I think technically based on Pact, um, packed standards it was what they would call a bestseller i think it sold like wow. 3000 copies or something which is enough to be a packed bestseller but the pro- the problem with working with publishers is that you don't get a lot of that revenue so i found self publishing things to be a lot more interesting and it's just it's better bang for buck when you're it's better roi i guess and it's also more interesting cuz you can experiment directly with the audience better you can response to what they're doing what they're what they're what's hitting what isn't hitting and kind of iterate faster but the downside is that i think people these days everyone just wants video <laughs> nobody actually wants to read anymore that's interesting so i i, I was going to ask about like the 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 publishing versus self-publishing and it seems like you prefer prefer the second mm-hmm. um but it seems then that video is is, is maybe above all yeah i think video I personally learn better from reading about something, but with video, you're more likely to get people to actually pay attention to Hmm. the whole content because it's very hard to scroll through a video, right? You can kind of scan through a blog post or even a book and you will miss 90% of the content and think you got everything and then complain when it isn't working. (laughs) Whereas video kind of forces you to sit there and actually go through everything. And I think especially with beginners, what I've noticed is when it's, when something is just written down, they complain that they can't, they don't have enough context to know how everything fits together. It's very hard to say, edit this file and then that file and then that file and then add a line there and a line over there. And you're going to have a working thing. Whereas if you if you can, like if you actually describe all of those transitions and all of those, now click here, click there, yeah. you're going to have an extremely dry piece of text <laughs> that nobody's going to read. And it's going to be just confusing. 
But if you outsource all of that small stuff to video, where you're just show where they can see what you're doing and you're explaining the gist, that makes it it's it basically gives you a two-layer medium where the video is showing the nuts and bolts and the basics that aren't interesting to write about, but are still useful for people to see, especially if they're new to the field or new to VS Code or whatever. And then use the audio and the explanation to just talk about why you're doing what you're doing so that that's what you would want to write in a blog post, but it's hard to make that stand on its own. Yeah, yeah. That makes sense. You're able to see a lot more of those transitions, uh, which are very confusing to write about. Yeah. So you can listen to the audio to get the the why and the how and the why and the and the purpose and how everything fits together and then you can see the nuts and bolts in the actual video, so that it's like a it's a it's a richer medium. Yeah, and that I guess that's why it works. Interesting. Now, what are your favorite platforms then for like selling video? So if you're making a video product, uh, what are good ways to actually like you know sell that to people? So far, I found Gumroad to be the best way to actually sell. Uh, because they have a very, they have a super simple integration. You can just put up a product description and add a have a buy button that so people can give you money. But then for the actual distribution of video content, I use I've been using Teachable so far. Okay. And Teachable's editor kind of sucks, and <laughs> I actually I actually had a freelancer build me a. I'm essentially using Teachable to host my content, but it's loading just a JavaScript script that then loads loads markdown from a from a CDN and puts it and injects it into the page so that I don't have to deal with teachable's <laughs> editor. Well, that's a little bit of a bummer, but I I appreciate the tip. I mean, it's like at the end of the day w- the last thing you want to do is build your own software, just yeah. use something that already exists cuz there's enough video course software out there. I think uh, teachable is good. Podia I've heard I've used Podia as a consumer and it's really good. Gumroad can do video as well. It's just not as polished. It's kind of, sure. here are all the files and there's no structure, no UI. And honestly, even YouTube these days lets you do uh, protected private uh, playlists so that only people who buy something can use them. Interesting. Interesting. Well, those are a bunch of good options. Uh, what projects do you have that are kind of like coming down the pipe that you're really, really excited about? Yeah, so I'm... I'm thinking of, well, not thinking, I'm going to launch a serverless handbook the, later this year. I'm kind of working on it right now. And the idea was there was that for the past year, I've been doing a lot. I've been working a lot with serverless as a front-end engineer, and it's very confusing. <laughs> and it's very difficult. There just aren't that many resources out there. No. And it, it's, I was really hard to piece everything together. So, and I've been thinking, how do I write a cohesive story out of this? How do I make... Cause, if it's a blog post it, or a tutorial, it needs to have a narrative. But it's there's just so many different pieces that I, I don't know how to make a narrative. So I'm going to instead create a handbook, which is going to be like a collection of recipes. How do you deal with nice. AWS Lambda talking to each other? How do you deal with basic setup? What do you do when you have a database that, need, that has a limited amount of connections and you have to deal with that in your Lambdas? Stuff like that. So it's going to be essentially a collection of I'm going to call it a, a handbook because it's going to be ideally something that you reference throughout working with stuff. Mm-hmm. I don't want it to be something that you read from start to finish. I want it to be like a resource that you can use continuously. And I'm going to make it 
free or pay what you want. So it's going to be out there online and you'll be able to just get it and use it whenever you need to. I love that idea. I know as a front-end developer, like a lot of those technologies are making things easier. But if you're not already in the ops side of things, like you don't already know all of the AWS stuff and like have certificates there, yeah. uh, the documentation is not for you. It's just not friendly. No, it's really not. It's really designed for other engineers. And even when it's in JavaScript, it's basically done for Java people who... <laughs> are for some strange reason writing JavaScript. <laughs> um, yeah, like the documentation assumes you already know everything. And I remember a lot of the times when I was figuring this stuff out, I, there weren't even blog posts. There were GitHub issues that I was <laughs> digging through to figure out how to do something. And like, you know, we can do better than that. It's, it's yeah. especially not, like, I think Jamstack is really becoming a thing and everyone, mm -hmm. more and more people are moving there. And I think it's really exciting that front-end engineers are, empowered to own everything from start to finish. Yeah. But it's just, I think it can be easier for them to get started. So that's why I'm going to make serverless handbook. I'm really excited about that personally, as someone who has a lot of front end experience, because uh, it does feel like, I don't know, those lines of like front end, full stack ops, you know, it, yeah, all those kind of those lines are always shifting. And it really does feel like, you know, we're at the beginning of a time where with a lot of these tools, a lot of these serverless tools, you can take what you know and actually like become a full stack developer with like a handful of extra pieces of knowledge. Exactly. Yeah, because especially with serverless functions, you already know how to write a JavaScript function. And now you can, instead of running it in the browser, you can run it in a server and it works pretty much the same. Yeah. But it's just different enough that it's hard to figure out sometimes. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, this has been an absolute pleasure. Is there anything else that you'd like to pitch that's coming up, um, let people know about? Yeah, the main thing that's coming up is the serverless handbook. And probably in January, I'm going to launch my full stack React Jamstack workshop as a self-paced course. Oh, cool. So that's going to be coming up as well. It's not quite ready yet, but that those are the plans right now. Awesome. Well, if people want to learn more about that, uh, where do they join your newsletter? Where can they follow you on Twitter? and uh, be in the know. Yeah, if you go on swizzes.com, there should be a newsletter sign-up form. That's always the best way to find out about products I'm making and things I'm thinking about. Otherwise, I'm swizzets on Twitter. And pretty much if you just type swizzets with a W into the internet, you will find me. <laughs> awesome, awesome. Well, hey, thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Uh, I'm glad that we could finally meet, uh, I guess not in person, but as close as possible. Yeah, it's pretty much in person. <laughs> yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks, Swizzits, for joining us this week. You've inspired me to identify the most important things that I absolutely want in my life and let the rest just kind of fill in the gaps. To find links to anything that was mentioned in today's episode, visit reactpodcast.com slash 67. A big thanks to our sponsors, TopTal and Infinite Red. Do you want to accelerate your career and plug into jobs with top Silicon Valley and Fortune 500 clients? Do you have what it takes to join the world's top 3% of freelance developers? Get started today with TopTal. Go to toptaljobs.com and take back control of your career. Do you need help bringing your ideas to life in React Native? Hire the industry experts at Infinite Red. Visit reactpodcast.infinite.red and get two tickets to next year's Chain React Conf. 
meet the team, and see why they're the ones to take your React Native app the distance. Build a beautiful, functional React Native app with Infinite Red. This episode of React Podcast was edited by Mikhail Delport. It was produced by Mikhail Delport and Sarah Jackson. You can find React Podcast on Spec, a network to help designers and developers level up. Visit spec.fm to find other shows that will take you further in your career. Help us out by reviewing this show on iTunes. Your reviews help the show grow and help us ensure great guests and awesome content week to week. To join the discussion, visit reactpodcast.com slash chat or follow us on Twitter at React Podcast. I'm at Chantastic. To stay out of the discussion but get updates, visit reactpodcast.com slash news and sign up for emails. Thanks so much for giving us your attention. We'll be in your ears again next week. Thank you.